Welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast, the show where we dissect the businesses of top producers, examine their growth strategies, and share with you the bare bones of their success. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and I'm glad you're here. Let's operate. Hello and welcome to the Small Business Surgeon Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Smith, and this is uh, episode zero. This is an episode that I'm doing all by myself, and uh, I'm here to talk to you guys uh, pretty much about my background, why I'm here, what I'm doing with the podcast, and uh, who this podcast is for. So yeah, bear with me here as I attempt to monologue the entire episode. I do have a uh, a few notes, um, but the most important thing is, you know, who is this podcast for? Who am I talking to? And uh, essentially, it's people like me, people like myself, people like the uh, the person that I was and that I used to be. Uh, you know, I'm really wanting to engage with people that have a a similar mindset, guys that uh, that may be ready to get out of that nine to five that they've been in, maybe cancel the status quo a little bit. And, uh, you know, the uh, the aspiring entrepreneurs, guys that are uh, taking the first steps into owning their own businesses, or even, you know, guys that are currently crushing six figures and looking to scale to, uh, to seven, you know, and it's difficult because I want to try and talk to everybody and share all the experiences I've had, but I really want to boil this down to uh, just those guys that uh, that are like me. I, I really feel like I've got something to offer by uh, talking to the guys that have a similar mindset and are wanting to take a similar path. Now, for those of you that uh, are just now discovering me and who I am, I have built two uh, seven-figure companies uh, in the past, and we'll get to that further on in the show. Uh, the first one, it was uh, it was a car dealership. It had uh, very slim profit margins and um you know i i ended up selling it because i i was working far too many hours for far little return uh the second business i uh, i built was uh, was a supplement company and i ended up just uh, just losing that owing to the fact that um i was drinking far too much alcohol so we'll get into that and we'll get into my story uh, a little bit as we go through here but the whole point of the uh, small business surgeon podcast it's to bring in other business owners it's to bring in like-minded guys that are maybe uh, a little bit behind me or a little bit ahead of me in the uh, in the trajectory of uh, business ownership and uh, really to cut away and dissect, if you will, uh, their businesses and see what makes their businesses tick, uh, as well as, you know, looking at the failures of these guys and looking at the lessons that they've learned. Because we get a, uh, a whole lot of stuff on social media where everybody's successful, everybody's riding around a Lamborghini, everybody's uh, standing in front of a private jet, and you only ever see people's highlight reels. So people think that they are, you know, instant overnight successes and that there's nothing else to being an entrepreneur other than buying a Ferrari. And if I don't have one, well, maybe I've done it wrong. And uh, there's a lot more to being an entrepreneur than that. And what I've found through reaching out to other entrepreneurs and through coaching other guys is that, um, you know, we've all gone through the same problems. We've all had the same 
issues in starting and running companies, whether they are huge seven figures looking to scale to eight or whether they're just now getting started out. Most companies have the same basic uh, ingredients, if you will, uh, regardless of what industry they're operating in. And, um, you know, most entrepreneurs make the same mistakes. And the whole point of me doing this and me interviewing other entrepreneurs and being real and raw with you guys is letting you know that, you know, for every victory, there's several defeats. Um, we don't just wake up and become successful entrepreneurs. And by getting with other guys that have businesses and other guys that are, uh, doing well and having them open up and share with you guys the um, the failures that they've gone through and some of the trials that they've had to go through. It's really my hope that can give you guys listening um, a little bit of uh, hope and validation in the fact that you are doing uh, the exact same that we did. <laughs> and um, hopefully you can shortcut by taking some of our lessons and taking some uh, tidbits away from the show uh, to help yourselves and help your businesses grow and uh, avoid the mistakes that uh, that we made, you know. And um, I've set up a Facebook page, uh, The Small Business Surgeon. You just go to at uh, Small Business Surgeon. The Instagram is the same, at Small Business Surgeon. And then the Facebook page also has a group attached to it called The uh, the Clinic. And uh, in there we do, uh, do discuss some of the more in-depth things. We'll uh, post the shows and uh, go over show notes and stuff like that for you guys so you can uh, be sure and uh, kind of get some good lessons out of that stuff as well so um, that's who I am that's what the uh, show's about and uh, you know again why should you listen to me I mean I've been doing this since uh, 2004 you can probably tell I am not an American uh, I live in College Station Texas I've lived here for the past 20 years and um, you know I started my first business uh, in 2004 so uh, this is episode zero so I wanted to use it just to give you a little bit of my history and a little bit of why maybe I could help you out. So I started uh, about 12 years old on my little entrepreneur journey. Uh, I lived in a small village of about 150 people and there was uh, only one real way for a 12 year old to make money. Well, two, one was uh, one was babysitting, which uh, my sisters, they cornered the market on that. So the other one was the, uh, the paper route. So, um, I would deliver newspapers every night after school and then, um, you know, I'd save the money from newspapers and I'd invest it in, well, actually, no, I wouldn't invest it. I'd go and buy records with it and, uh, and sweets and candy. <laughs> um, but I was a very uh, entrepreneurial little 12-year-old. I wanted to, uh, I always wanted to own my own business and do my own thing. But, uh, you know, the, the job opportunities offered in rural England to 12-year-olds are few and far between. Um, and I ended up uh, getting the milk route <laughs> as well. So uh, in the mornings before school, I'd help deliver milk. And then in the evenings, I'd deliver the newspapers. And, um, you know, I got to uh, going down to the wholesaler and buying candy and then putting it in little baggies and selling it to my friends at school. So there was always some kind of, uh, of, of hustle um, and one of the things my dad really drilled into me was, you know, always be working. Uh, there's always work to do. There's always a job to do. There's always something that needs to be done. And, um, he would always complain, uh, when I was a teenager that I couldn't see work. Uh, I couldn't see what needed to be done. And, you know, I hope he's not listening, but I could see it. I just didn't want to do it. Um, <laughs> 
Anyway, um, I used to go on the weekends painting houses with my dad and my granddad. So my dad was actually a teacher, uh, but my great granddad and my granddad have both been painters. So he uh, he apprenticed as a painter and uh, I uh, went into the family trade as well. I apprenticed as a painter. So uh, when I came to America, um, I was 19 and I was a, a professional drummer. I'd got a um, abandoned Dallas that had asked me to come out and play with them so uh, I ended up 19 years old in a strange country well what's the first thing you do it's, it's you know uh, pick up a paintbrush so um, in between touring with a band uh, to make extra money I went to paint houses and um, you know that's that's what really got me started um, out here it's got my start it was my background in construction and my ability to uh, you know be able to work and see jobs um, you know I remember I'd get jobs um, fixing roofs for people fixing flooring painting houses just anything that would go into uh, into investment money and and paying the bills and um, when I was 23 years old uh, I stumbled across, I'd wanted it forever because, you know, you'd, I don't know if any of you remember the late night infomercials, uh, back before Netflix, I'm showing my age now, <laughs> back before Netflix and all that good stuff. I mean, you only had uh, a, a choice of channels on what to watch on TV and late at night, you would often get infomercials uh, for selling products. And one that I saw that always stuck out to me, it was by uh, a chap called uh, Carlton Sheets. And he had this no money down way of buying real estate. It was a no money down real estate course. And, uh, you know, I got all excited for it. And I called the phone number and uh, they wanted like a thousand dollars for this course. And, uh, you know, to me at that age, uh, 23, 24 years old, whatever I was, man, you might as well have said, it, you know, we want a million dollars for it because uh, I didn't have a thousand dollars spared to buy a course. Uh, but what I did have was work ethic and um, I was actually in Goodwill buying clothes uh, for painting, buying work clothes. And because, um, you know, what's better than used blue jeans if you're going out to get them uh, shredded up and covered in paint? And um, I saw this this course uh, for sale on the shelf at Goodwill, brand new, uh, vacuum packed in saran wrap still. And uh, it was $10. So that was that. I bought that. And then um, it took about six months of, uh, of reading and and growing the confidence i would say um you know amassing the testicular fortitude or if we're being really honest getting the balls up to uh, to go and do this but i bought my first house with no money down um it was forty two thousand dollars um and by the time i flipped it and did all the work i mean i did everything on that house um boy like I did a lot of work on the damn thing, but by the time I flipped it and sold it, I made I cleared about thirteen grand on it, um, which to a twenty-four year old that you know was bouncing between jobs and teaching drum lessons and playing drums on the nights and weekends, you know, thirteen grand was uh, it was a heck of a lot of money, you know, because I'm making seven dollars an hour um, at my day job, so uh, you know, thirteen grand, I, I was hooked on that, so I ended up. Uh, getting into property sales and house flipping and, uh, you know, finding a hard money lender and going and uh, doing all my own work and stuff. Um, because I figured out while I was painting, it was the guys that owned the projects that were making the money. It wasn't the guy swinging the paintbrush. So that's what I did for, for quite a while. And um, towards the, uh, the middle of 2015, uh, sorry, 2005 jesus <laughs> i'm aging myself now but towards the middle of 2005 i picked up with a uh, with a young guy that was um he was one of my drum students 
And he was what they call a landman, which to me at the time meant absolutely nothing. Well, a landman is somebody that goes out and does legal research into uh, oil and gas rights for drilling companies to where they will acquire property or acquire leases. Um, the landman will go out and run the title and uh, figure out who owns what, and then he'll go out and negotiate the lease and all that kind of stuff. And um, well, I had to do title when I would buy a house and I would look and there would be a thousand dollars worth of title expense. So I said to this guy, I said, hey, help me out here. I'll trade you some drum lessons for some title lessons. And so uh, that began my career as a landman. Um, I worked for most of 2005 um, taking these lessons and I reached out. I found uh, a place called Landman 101 in Tyler, Texas. So I drove up there for, for the courses. And um, yeah, anyway, December uh, of 2005, I got my first full-time job in uh, in oil and gas and the uh, the poor fella um his name was paul gene um, the poor fella i must have wore him out for six months just calling and calling and calling and following up and um i met his sister at a conference in tyler and she was the one that called him and told him to hire me and uh, and he did he he said i don't have anywhere to put you um will you take uh, a desk in a hallway and for the first three months i i sat at a uh, a folding card table in the hallway and everybody absolutely fucking hated me because i was this english kid this pet project of this crew chief that knew nothing about title and um you know <laughs> i i was so desperate to uh, to get started i um i traded painting a house like full painting a house the whole exterior for uh, for a laptop and um you know but that laptop allowed me to go to work and uh, and learn title and um you know i got um i got along very very well in oil and gas one of the things i never drank coffee before i started working excuse me i'm drinking a lot of water i'm on uh, i'm on 75 hard uh, just the uh, the podcast crew um, all challenged each other to lose weight. So, uh, yeah, I'm drinking a lot of water and uh, just trying to stop from peeing. But um, anyway, so one thing uh, that helped me get ahead at oil and gas, I never drank coffee, but I always loved the way it smelled. So I was so excited to have a job that actually paid. I remember my first um, first year's equivalency. I mean, they paid day rate in 1099. But when you added it all up, my first year's equivalency was $55,000 a year. So I'd gone from $7 an hour hustling to $55,000 a year at a desk. I mean, it was just fucking incredible. I was like that. that you imagine you, you lock your puppy in the boot in the trunk of your car for like, two hours and open the trunk of your car and then see how happy the puppy is that's how fucking happy i was to get to work every day i loved it it was just amazing i i was working in an air-conditioned office um you know this opportunity had come because i just asked and asked and worked and worked and now all of a sudden i was comfortable you know for the first time in my life i could buy fucking groceries without looking at the the, the checking account you know i could go out for, for for drinks and for dinner and not worry about the bill and i mean like you know we're, we're talking a 40 dollar bill <laughs> and uh, up to up to then it was always do i have enough cash what have i got coming up what payments do i have to cover and boy when i got this oil and gas job so i was just in love with it so i always would get to work super super early and um you know we would start work about 8 30 
and I would generally get there um, because there was internet and my computer was there and I could, you know, read stuff and look stuff up and do all this stuff. So I would generally get there about 7.15 or 7.30. And um, because I was always there first, I thought, well, shit, I'll just make the coffee. I wonder what it tastes like. And that's when I started drinking uh, drinking coffee and was, was welcome to the world of caffeine. Um, but I showed up early every single day and made coffee every morning. And what that led to was, uh, was was Paul Jean, bless him. He would uh, he would come down the hallway. He'd get to work about five till eight every day, and he would come down the hallway scratching his head and he'd say, "Hey, uh, have you seen Steve today?" And I'd be like, "No, sir, he's not been in." Well, have you seen Dave today? No, sir, he's not been in. Well, have you seen Jessica today? No, sir, she's not been in. Well, can you do this? Yes, sir, I can figure it out. And so that led to me um, just becoming his go-to for stuff because I was there first thing in the morning. I was always on time and I always got done what I said I was going to do. And um, those are a couple of tenants that were taught to me by a guy called Herb Thorne, who I painted houses for uh, in the very early 2000s. And he told me, he said, you're not going to last in this house painting business because you've got life figured out. And I said, well, well why is that? And he says, because there's, there's two things that you do that 98% of Americans just don't do. And I said, well, well, what is it? He said, you show up on time and you do what you say you're going to do. And, uh, and funnily enough, that is a core value that I've carried with me. I think probably my granddad was the one that drilled that into me. And, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, my dad as well. Um, but I've carried that with me. And that's a core value now that I implement in all of my businesses. I mean, everything's scheduled so I can keep track of stuff. Um, this podcast uh, is scheduled. My meetings are scheduled. My lunches are scheduled. But I know where I have to be. And I'm always there on time. And it is absolutely paramount that we do what we say we're going to do so i've carried those um i've carried those core values with me um pretty much you know forever and it's what enabled me to accelerate my oil and gas career so fast and um anyway you know to cut a long story short everybody remembers what happened in 2009 so uh, oil and gas was just belting along in 2008 and uh, it came to a screeching halt in uh, in december um after the uh late August, early September collapse of Lehman Brothers and the uh, the housing market started to crash. Well, oil and gas, natural gas, I think, went from $14 to about $2. So um, that ended up with just about everybody getting sent home, including me. So first week of January in 2009, I've gone, I mean, at that point, I was clearing over 120000 a year. Um, and I've gone from that to zero and I'm really kind of, I've got, you know, 40 or 50 grand in savings, but I'm really kind of struggling as to damn, well, what do I do to replace my income? And I Googled, uh, how to make money online, <laughs> believe it or not, how to make money on the internet. Oh, good Lord. And, um, you know, I, luckily I ran across a forum called PPC coach. Now, PPC is uh, pay-per-click. It's called pay-per-click advertising or pay-per-click marketing. And that is, uh, that's opposite of SEO. So with SEO, people will search for, for what you've got and uh, you'll pop up organically in the search results. Well, with pay-per-click, you see the little ad space at the top of Google there, that's pay-per-click. Or you see the newsfeed ads in Facebook, that's pay-per-click. Anything where you are paying to put eyeballs on a, a particular media to result in a click and a click through um, to a landing page and hopefully to a sale. So I got into uh, internet marketing, pay-per-click marketing in 2009. And we won't touch 
uh, too much on it because I went back to oil and gas. I was one of the lucky ones. Um, I was only laid off about a month. Um, there were some guys that, it, you know, it, it took them a year to get hired on again. Um, but I had worked my way up with a good reputation and was fairly well near the top of the pile. So um, I was only off work for about four weeks, but it had planted this little seed in the back of my head about, hey, there's money on this internet thing. So late at night, every night, I would sit up on the computer and try and figure out um, how to make money online. And I started out with building landing pages and sending traffic to pages and sending traffic to, to websites. And um, I got into affiliate marketing in such a way that, you know, I'd make $50 a day and then I'd make $100 a day and then I'd make $200 a day and then I'd make $250 a day and it would go up and up and then it would come down and down and then a traffic source would change or an ad would get old. So I was always fiddling with it, but I never really gave it the time of uh, the time of day because, um, number one, I had a, a great oil and gas job that was uh, that was paying uh, very well. Um, and number two, I, uh, I decided to start flipping property again and uh, I bought a derelict car dealership which I then turned into an underelect car dealership because uh, my buddy David Levine, he uh, he's on the uh, the Live at the Lounge podcast with me. Well, my buddy David Levine and I, back in the day, we had a, well, fuck it, what could possibly go wrong uh, kind of mentality. And that led to me getting a dealer's license, renovating a car dealership, and uh, actually opening um, a, a very small independent car lot to which I learned an absolute just so much stuff when it comes to sales and customer service and follow-up and, and really the psychology of the sale and why people buy stuff. Um, the My time in the car business was just, I mean, it was great. And, um, you know, they say that if you open a car dealership and you get out of it with your shirt still on your back, then you've done a very good job. And, um, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't do too badly, uh, actually. The guys we sold it to were out of business within 18 months. Um, but we didn't do too badly. The problem was my, my return on investment was like, by the time we paid our floor plan fees and we paid us shipping these cars back and forth and then we took care of repos and all this other stuff, you know, my ROI was like four or 5% and it just wasn't worth the aggravation and the headache. Um, you know, and I kept my legal job. So there was two offices at the car dealership. One I used as uh, oil and gas office. And the other one we used for selling cars. So, um, you know, it was a great time and I definitely learned a lot, but I'm glad that, um, I'm glad that I sold it when I did. I'm glad that I got out of there with, uh, with the shirt on my back, as opposed to, uh, most guys that, that try it and fail, but I carried a lot of lessons away from the car dealership. Um, into my next project, uh, which was back to affiliate marketing. The, the more I was doing internet marketing, the better I was getting at it. And I ended up um, being selected for a mastermind up in Kansas City with a, a company called Revive Media that was run by Ryan Gray and Ralph Ruckman. And uh, I made a lot of friends that I'm still friends with uh, to this day, you know, seven years later. And they were, I don't know if you remember Flappy Bird, that was the big one that was coming out. And we would do carrier build content for other countries. So in America, you buy stuff from the app store, or you did. I mean, you still do. But like European countries, uh, Africa, um, 
Russia, um, all over there, I think Japan as well, you would um, you would buy stuff and then you would get paid in your phone bill. You would pay for it using your phone bill. It was called carrier build content. So what we did was build landing pages and traffic funnels for carrier build content, uh, really before traffic funnels was, was, was a word. I think it was before Russell Brunson had coined click funnels and all that stuff. So uh, I think the most app installs that they did in a month was uh, 43 million. And that was uh, that was a WhatsApp campaign in, in Africa. And, you know, these guys are making two bucks a pop, but, um, you know, times that by 43 million and it, it, it becomes a very lucrative business. So one thing that that led me to was this is how I built my second uh, seven figure business was um, I noticed that the advertiser side of things, the guys that owned the offers were the ones that were really making serious money. And um, so I went to work and figured out, you know, how can I own an offer? And I took some of that money um, in the car dealership space that I got from selling the car dealership. I took some of that money and used it. I bought into a company here in town who shall remain nameless um, because um, I don't want to give them any fucking publicity whatsoever. And um, I put a ton of money from my car dealership into an essential oil brand here in town. And I learned, <laughs> I learned a lot, <laughs> another one of life's lessons. Um, so we went through the whole thing of, you know, creating the brand, creating the packaging, creating the formulas and putting the marketing together and building the landing pages and setting up the affiliate traffic. And um, we, we launched it and we had a, uh, we had a launch go on and we were doing, um, we were doing a trial uh, to a, a rebuild. So it would be, you know, $9.95 for your first month, which we'd obviously lose money on. And then we'd replenish your supply and it would be $39.95 for a 30-day supply, right? So um, you've got this, uh, it's called negative option billing. So that, that's what we did with the essential oil. And then, um, you know, some of the guys that were involved in the company decided they would like to take a distribution from the company and uh, have me no longer work there. So they did, they took all of my capital as a distribution um, and then gave me the legal papers and removed me from the company. And whilst technically not legal, um, what my attorney told me was, look, you know, these guys are going to fuck up at some point. And when they do, legally, you still own that percentage of the company. However, this piece of paper here, um, it absolves you from all, all blame. So uh, just sit tight. It's like if they ever launch it and actually make a company out of it, you can go after them for the uh, percentage that you own. And if they don't, well, you just got away scot-free in all the lawsuits that they're going to generate by being assholes. So uh, lesson learned. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of walked away from that one licking my wounds. But what I'd done there was um, leverage the relationships that I built at Revive Media and I had relationships with traffic networks. And then I leveraged the relationships that I got through the uh, essential oil program um, to wholesalers and distributors and manufacturers. And um, luckily, one, uh, one guy that owned a um, fulfillment center, he was part of the distribution network there in Houston. Um, he kind of saw what had happened. And he's got, he told me, you know, those guys are idiots. You, you were the one pushing this. You were the one flying the, flying the airplane on this deal. Um, I'm going to be your partner and you come fly my airplane. We'll split the funding 50, 50, and we'll split the profits 50, 50, and I'll teach you how to do it. And of course I said, fuck yes. I jumped on the opportunity. 
So that was um, August 2015. We launched the uh, the supplement brand, and it took off. I mean, it really did. We did uh, um, just a, a a very basic uh, straight sale to um, continuity upsell. So if you bought our supplements for you could buy them straight for $99 or you could get 20% off and buy them for 80 bucks. And then you would go into a monthly uh, shipping program and you'd get billed $80 a month and we'd send them to you till you canceled. Um, that was the incentive for, for the discount. And uh, I made so much money, I thought that it would never end. And I chased bad investment after bad investment thinking that, um, you know, I was going to, uh, going to hit another one of these. And when it went bad, um, obviously when you think the money's not going to end and it's the first time you've made real, real money, like almost fuck you money, not quite, but almost, I mean, it was the most I'd ever made. And, you know, when you've got that level of money coming in, um, it's very easy to, uh, to, to lose control over the amount of money that's going out. Um, especially on the drinking and partying, uh, side, especially on the risky investment side, that kind of stuff. And, um, I was generally, you know, drunk from about 11 o'clock in the morning onwards, um, terrible husband, terrible father, um, you know, that and a couple of other factors, uh, led to the break, uh, breakdown of my marriage, um, which to this day, uh, I regret, I regret how that, how that happened, but you know, what has happened stays happened and, uh, and there we are. But, um, I can absolutely say it was an excess of alcohol that, uh, that caused those issues. And it was the excess of alcohol that caused me not to be paying attention to my company. And if I had been paying attention, I would have been fine. And if I'd been living on a hundred thousand dollars a year, which I was making in oil and gas and investing the rest of the profits, I'd have been fine, but I wasn't, I was living off the profit as it came in and we were having the time of our lives. It was great. Um, but that was bad, uh, for business. And what happened was a bunch of fraud traffic got pushed through the network and I didn't catch it. And if I'd been reconciling my business and reconciling my accounts, uh, I would have caught that. And if I had been, <laughs> you know, if, if I'd not been drunk, I would have been reconciling my accounts and I would have caught it. If I'd not been reckless with the money I made and if I'd invested it in other places, it wouldn't have mattered. I could have rode the storm out. But um, for all the what ifs, I was uh, I was done. I, uh, I ended up losing every last little penny and then some more. Um, owing to the fact that my chargeback rates spiked, we lost our ability to process credit cards. And we had three and a half thousand customers on auto ship every month with no way to bill for them. Half of them have been shipped product already. It was an absolute fucking unmitigated disaster. And all this happened um, right as my little sister was getting married in 2017. So I was over in England. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been to an English wedding, uh, but there's a lot of drinking involved um, because I was there visiting. There was even more drinking involved. And because my high school friends were all kicking about, there was even more drinking involved. And looking back, I don't think I've got a picture of me. And I wasn't in the wedding video because I shot it. But I don't think I've got a picture of me over that two week period without having you know glassy eyes. And so my business has collapsed. I've been drunk for two weeks in a row. Um, my little sister's got married. And we're leaving my parents' house uh, about 5.15 in the morning 
um, on, you know, last day of the trip, heading back to the airport. And um, as I was saying goodbye to everybody, yeah, at the time she was uh, my, my 63 year old mother, um, a little bit older than that now, bless her. But uh, she uh, tiptoed up, because I'm quite a bit taller than she is. She tiptoed up, she whispered in my ear, she whispered, sort your fucking life out. And I don't know if you've ever had a 63-year-old English mum swear at you, um, but let me tell you, it's quite a uh, it's quite a defining moment. It's it's very uh, it's very unsettling. It's very polarizing. Um, it, it, it's a very yeah. It it really did uh, it really did affect me in a way that I wasn't really sure what was going on. But I was like, shit, man, I'm disappointing my mom. Um, you know, mom and dad, they're the two people you want to, you want to impress the most, right? Those are the two people that you want, all you want from them is, is recognition is, Hey, good job. Hey, I'm proud of you. And I'm, I'm getting the exact opposite. I sort your fucking life out. Wow. Well, fuck. So I get on the airplane and I'm sitting down I'm like, fuck it. I'm having a drink. And I go to order a double Jack and Coke and I'm like, it's like fucking 10 30 in the morning. And I said, you know what? I'll just have the Coke. And um, I made that decision that day that I wasn't going to drink that day, just that day. I'm just going to have a minute. I'm having a break. And I got all the way through that night. I woke up the next morning and I thought, hey, maybe I won't have a drink today. Maybe I can make it two days. And then it dawned on me that I couldn't remember a weekend since I was about 17 years old that I hadn't had a drink like not necessarily been drunk. I didn't get drunk all the time, but there was definitely, you know, sit on the couch, crack a beer, uh, sit on the couch, have a whiskey, uh, go to the pub, shoot some pool, drink a couple of beers. Not getting hammered drunk, just two or three beers. There were plenty of weekends I was hammered drunk, don't get me wrong. But, you know, there wasn't a weekend from 17 to fucking 37 that I hadn't had a drink. And that didn't sit right. So... I made it another day and I made it another day and then the withdrawal symptoms started coming in and that was not a pleasant experience. Um, but that prior February, I had watched a good friend of mine, his uh, his girlfriend, and they'd been together about 10 years. Um, I watched her slowly go downhill and then jaundice and then the end of life care that happened to her in his apartment. And then, you know, I was one of the last guys to go and help pick her up and turn her and move her and make her comfortable. Um, and, you know, about 18 hours after that, she passed away in the chair in his apartment. And that was all from alcohol. And I think she was 46 at the time. So that had just happened as well. And he said, you know what, I'm 37 years old. Do I really want to live another nine years and then, then die like this poor lady did? And the answer was absolutely fucking not. No, no way. But I think where I was successful in giving up alcohol was the fact that I didn't say I'm never going to drink again. Um, I said, you know what? I'm not going to have a drink today. I'm not going to have a drink today. I'm not going to have a drink today. And um, ever since I quit drinking, I've had a couple of drinks. I've tried it a couple of times uh, because I'm fully in control of it now. And surprisingly enough, I think um, whatever whatever spiritual being you believe in is uh, is trying to give me a message because every time I've tried it, I've tried it twice uh, drinking, and both times I've been violently ill after just a drink, um, like uh, just shaking and shivering and cold sweats and yeah, like a like an alcohol fever. So I've had a very averse reaction to alcohol now. So uh, I'm quite happily sober, and I will be sober for um, probably. 
the rest of my life. Probably with the exception of maybe a glass of scotch from my dad on Christmas. Probably just a half glass because I don't want another fucking allergic reaction. Anyway, <laughs> got off topic there. So, I mean, it's 2017. I'm absolutely fucked. Um, I've lost my fucking ability to print money, which is what it was. I, I, I told my buddy David, I'm like, dude, it's like I found a cheat code to life. And I really had. I was I was doing very, very well. And then all of a sudden that rug was pulled away and I had absolutely fucking nothing. And I was being sued for shit I didn't even have. And um it definitely uh it definitely opened my eyes. And um so I was bouncing around going, well shit, what am I gonna do? And my buddy Tex was making videos um and I liked radio control helicopters. So I bought a drone and I got a drone license. I thought, oh, fuck it. I'll make a few videos until I decide what to do. It wasn't like a career move. It was just like, it'll keep me busy. It'll keep my mind focused. I'm probably going to go back to oil and gas at this point. You know, um, fuck having a business. I'm tired of it. And through that and through knocking on doors, I got picked up by, I got picked up by a real estate company. Um, to train their realtors in internet marketing. And I thought that was a really, really good uh, good job um, until I actually went and tried training realtors. And, you know, for those of you that don't know, most real estate agents aren't as successful or wealthy as, you know, the real estate magazines would have you believe. Um, my statistics may be a little off, but um, up until last year, I think it was 87% of people that got their real estate license left the business within the first 18 months. The average um, real estate salary, sorry, the average real estate income before expenses was about $42,000 a year, which means that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of money to go around after marketing expenses and everything else. Yes, sir. Um, my dog just liquid shit all over the floor. In here? At uh, the house. Well, if you wait till you get home, it will be dry and easier to clean up. <laughs> All right, so what do I press when I'm done? Um, just hit shift space and then hit the stop record button. All right. So we're going to actually leave that bit in the podcast unedited because <laughs> Kyle's dog just shat on the carpet. So uh, Kyle, he is my, uh, he's like Jamie at Joe Rogan's podcast. So Kyle actually has to leave. So I'm going to now be recording completely on my own. Uh, I do wish your dog all the best, Kyle. I hope he's okay. <laughs> Kyle has to now go and clean up uh, clean up some dog poop so anyway um, realtors realtors uh, licensed real estate agents don't make as much money as I thought they did and the average realtor is the average American um, there is a barrier to entry to real estate uh, that can be passed with judicious application of study and uh, just about anybody that's determined enough can get a real estate license however you need experience in sales, in marketing, in real estate, in, oh my God, so many things to be a successful realtor. And as I was trying to teach this class, I realized very quickly that the skill set that I was being asked to transfer uh, wasn't ready to be received by the majority of the folks in the class. Um, and that's not a slight on any of them it's just that i'd spent so long in the internet marketing world um you know i was wanting to explain tracking pixels to people that were still struggling to understand web browsers so 
you know, that didn't work out. But what did work out was me seeing a skills gap and me starting a uh, real estate company, which I still have to this day, called uh, Live in College Station. And, um, you know, it's now the second most followed real estate company on uh, social media here in town. And when I first built it, I went very, very aggressively after listings. And I thought, I'm going to be the digital marketer. I'm going to be the digital realtor. I'm going to be the guy that sells all the listings. And you know what? I just didn't fucking like it. Um, I did not like it. And I realized why. I figured it out. So when you sell a house, it is a very... It, it, generally, all right, I'm going to generalize here. When you sell a house, it, it, it's normally attached to some kind of negative connotation. It's attached to, um, you know, th th there's there's a couple of positive times where you got to sell a house, like for a promotion and you're moving up and you know, other stuff. But for the most part, it's, it, it's relatively ne negative. There's a need and a reason to sell the house. The people that are selling it want to sell it. They need to sell it badly. You know, it could be inherited. It could be the fact that they've transferred for work and they can't pay two mortgages. It could be a divorce. Um, there's a whole litany of reasons that people need to sell. But most people sell their house based on a need and not on a want. So all of that stress, it's my job as a real estate agent to take the stress away from my client, right? Well, all of that fucking stress got put on me. Well, it's been three weeks. Why haven't you sold the house? I'm like, well, nobody's bought it. They're like, well, are you marketing right? I'm like, well, it's been seen 14,000 times on Zillow, so I'd say yes. Um, but, you know, the stress there that I was expected to absorb made coming to work no fun. And one of the things I like to do is uh, actually fucking enjoy what I do for a living. And I started to look and think, well, what was my favorite transaction this month? What was my favorite client this month? What have I enjoyed the most this month? And it was always helping buyers. Um... You know, I like to help sellers that have difficult problems. Um, I like to help sellers that have um, probate issues and title issues and stuff that really fits my skill set. But for the most part, the joy I get is from the joy of buyers. When you buy a house, it's generally a joyous occasion. It's a decision. It's a new start. It's a level up. It's a new chapter. It's, you know, I've got a new job. I'm buying a house. It's I'm finally able to afford a mortgage and not rent. I mean, the joy you get from working with first-time homebuyers, um, it's just incredible. So I like to work on the buyer side of the equation now. So what I do is I've tailored my entire real estate company to attract buyers and, and not, so much, uh, not so much sellers. Now, I do sell still. If, if, if a friend calls me, somebody I know calls me and says, I need to sell my house, absolutely, um, hands down, I'm right there. But I don't solicit properties for sale anymore. Um, you know, I think I've got four right now, but they come to me um, organically. I don't look for houses to sell because that's not what I'm doing. I solicit buyer clients. I enjoy working with buyers. Um, it's much more fun, the anticipation of shopping for houses and all that stuff. So that led me to looking at what do I get joy out of, right? And realistically, I get joy from sharing knowledge and from helping people solve problems and that's what led to the small business surgeon okay so back in december of last year i uh, i was lucky enough to be in a coaching room with some very high level coaches up at apex in dallas and a lady up there jessica stroud she's one of the most referred insurance agents in her market i think she had over 700 referrals last year with uh, very little advertising uh, mainly marketing but very little advertising 
and uh, all word of mouth referrals. And I got to ask her, I said, well, how do you, how do you do it? And she said, serve the community, build a group and serve the community. So I decided to, well, what, what can I do? What am I good at? What do I have the ability to serve a community with? And the answer was knowledge. The answer is education because, you know, no, I don't have a private jet or a Lamborghini, but I have built legitimately two seven-figure companies and I'm sitting on Living College Station and the Texas Media Foundry, which both have the potential to be seven-figure companies within the next couple of years. So the reason I built the local group was I can reach out to small business owners and entrepreneurs and help them shortcut the lessons that I waded through headfirst. You know, there's no way around these lessons. You got to go through them. But boy, if I could help these guys work their way through the lessons that I made without it costing them the same mistakes that it cost me, well, hey, you know, that's what I'll do. So I set up a group. Uh, it's called BCS Business Owners and Entrepreneurs. And within the first month, it had over 500 people join. And I started working with these guys and talking to them. And that's where I came up with the idea for this podcast. Um, you know, it's relatively new as of January this year. I have been podcasting for about three years. We've got a, uh, a secondary podcast called Live at the Lounge, which is just about cigars and smoking and, and you know, three or four guys sitting in a room uh, shooting the shit. But I wanted to make the small business surgeon much more focused on mistakes and lessons and really interviewing entrepreneurs and giving them the opportunity to be uh, raw and to share their mistakes with other guys that are in the same business and allow those guys to shortcut those mistakes and allow the younger crop of upcoming entrepreneurs to learn from the stupid shit that we did for the last 10 or 15 years that has uh, that has hindered our progress and how we've managed to uh, come through that and be successful on the other side of it. So that is the point of the podcast. That's the point of the show. That's the point of why I think you should listen to me and why I think I am uh, qualified to uh, help people through their stuff. Um, you know, I have set up a very small uh, coaching company to where I have uh, just a few clients now from the uh, from the local area that I do coach uh, on a uh, on a monthly basis we we do check-ins and um, I've got an entire system that I've been building for them uh, so that's uh, that's very positive I enjoy helping people and uh, you know we've got the podcast so you can find us on Instagram at small business surgeon you can find us on Facebook at small business surgeon go like the page like the show obviously we're on iTunes uh, Spotify anywhere else you can get podcasts as well I think we're propagated amongst all the mainstream uh, podcast networks just look for us as uh, the small business surgeon and yeah so that just about wraps up this um, amazing monologue I kind of wish I'd had a few more uh, a few more questions I could have answered instead of just rambling on. But um, here soon, starting in the next uh, week or so, we're going to be dropping episodes with local business owners. And I will be interviewing them and finding out just exactly what it is that makes their businesses tick and what has made them successful and what failures that they have managed to overcome. So I hope you join us from the bottom of my heart. I am looking forward to getting to know you guys and to broadcasting and to bringing you guys some extremely good, high-quality content with some wonderful, well-known entrepreneurs. Thank you so much for listening today, guys. I am going to get off of here now and uh, get back to my next appointment. It's just past 2 o'clock. That means the, uh, the bell is ringing, and there's more stuff for me to do around here. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you being a part of the show.
and uh, I'm looking forward to getting to know each and every one of you. You'll stay safe and have a great day. Thank you. This episode of the Small Business Surgeon Podcast has been brought to you by the Well Hung Art Gallery, professionally mounting since 2020. Be sure to listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your silly podcasts. Take care and have yourselves a wonderful day.